Beloved, our text for this morning is from Ruth, chapter 1, the first five verses. Over the next times that the Lord allows me to uh, preach here, combined with uh, preaching through the catechism, I'd like to begin a series on, on Ruth. I preached that in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, HRC, and I'd, I enjoyed preaching through the book of Ruth, but I think there are uh, invaluable lessons for us to learn. It's a beautiful book combining the history of redemption but also the experiential grace of God in the lives of His people. And so why consider this book of the Old Testament in the first place? Well, as we consider its background and setting, we see that the book of Ruth and its history, its background, parallels our own day. As the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, says, there is nothing new under the sun. The book of the background of the book of Ruth is it's largely empty. It's negative. We could say it's even dark and foreboding. There's not much there that would offer hope. But it's exactly against that backdrop, on that canvas, that God comes and He he paints a beautiful, beautiful picture of redeeming grace. The book of Ruth gives a message of hope then, a message of hope and encouragement in those dark times, in times that are dark and foreboding, the message of of, of Ruth is one of hope and encouragement that God is not done with His work of redemption. Secondly, it's a book that shows us the consequences of the choices that we make as human beings. We'll see that very clearly this morning. The positive and the negative choices that we make issue forth in positive and negative consequences. And so it's a book that teaches us about that. It's a book about love on a human level, and who doesn't love a human love story? But I submit to you this morning that it's more than just a human love story. In that human love story, we see something of a divine love story. It details how God's providence and redemption work together to show God's works and ways with His people, even when they are least deserving of it. It shows us that God works through hard providences. Maybe some of us are here this morning struggling with that very thing, a hard providence. What is God doing in my life right now? Well, the book of Ruth, in a sense, is the key that unlocks the mystery of hard providences and calls us to wait upon the Lord. 
Not to sit idly by, but to, to wait in faith to see what God is doing day by day, to depend on Him, on His providence, and on His redemption. And so it's a book that is wedged in redemptive history between the time of the judges and the appearance of the kings, the kings of Israel. The book of Ruth anticipates the arrival of King David. The failure of the judges in the book of Judges in being God's representatives and God's rulers for the children of Israel shows the longing for a king. The book of Ruth addresses that longing, creates anticipation for King David, and through him, the greater David. It's a book that addresses the inclusion of strangers into the economy of grace. Ruth is a Moabite, and yet she becomes one of the children of Israel. She is included in the covenant of grace, and God teaches us how He does that, particularly with strangers, those who are outside, those who have never heard the gospel, those who have grown up outside of the church, and God challenges us as a church on that point, how He brings in strangers and makes them part of His family. It's a book that addresses the themes of emptiness and fullness, highlighting the the emptiness of the world and the fullness of God and His redemptive love, pictured in the characters, pictured in the development of the plot of this narrative. If we sum it all up this morning, we can say that the book of Ruth finds us exactly where we are at. The book of Ruth is contemporary, it's relevant for where we are at as a society, as a church, as believers, as strangers. God's redemptive love is writ large for His people to see, to glean comfort from in the midst of of dark times, times of leadership failure. Times of moral declension, times of poor choices and spiritual compromise. God comes with His Word to us this morning. It displays in the words of Sarah Ivo, my need for a Redeemer and a King. And then the Lord's faithfulness to be that Redeemer and King. And so that's where the book of Ruth points us this morning. As we move through this much-loved book in the months to come, let's look for this king and for this redeemer who comes in tender love to redeem and rule his people so that our minds and our hearts can be established, not in the circumstances around us, but in the very truth of God. So we can realize what the Apostle Paul says, that our faith will not be grounded in the wisdom of men, but in the very wisdom of God. And we don't know when the book of Ruth was written, though we, we can surmise that it was probably during or after the time of David, since his name is mentioned at the very end of the book. The placement of the book of Ruth varies in 
the canon of Scripture in the Hebrew Bible. It finds its place between the Song of Solomon and the book of Proverbs. Placing it within wisdom literature. In English versions of the Bible, it is found between Judges and 1 Samuel, where we find it this morning. We could argue it's the more natural placement for the book of Ruth in terms of chronology and the flow of redemptive history, how God has been working in the world to this point. The book of Ruth begins with tragedy, but it ends in triumph. So often we want the triumph without the tragedy. But this morning we're going to learn that God's purposes are worked out through tragedy and against the backdrop of tragedy. The first five verses of the book of Ruth are full of tragedy as Elimelech goes to sojourn in the land of Moab. He goes to sojourn in the land of Moab. And so our theme this morning is this, a tragic sojourn, a tragic sojourn. In the first place, we see the famine that prompted that tragic sojourn. The tragedy begins in the words of verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. There's really a twofold famine here that we see from the Scriptures. A twofold famine that formed the backdrop of the book of Ruth and that prompted Elimelech to go to sojourn in the land of Moab. There's a famine of leadership. A famine of spiritual leadership and a famine of political leadership. The times of the judges were hard times, though they were glimpses of the leader that God wanted for Israel in the judges. Yet by and large, there were times of failure. God did send deliverance through the judges again and again. And yet, as we look at the the history of Israel, there were dark times. They were exposed to the enemy. As we follow the lives of the judges, we see that Othniel is largely a positive leader. But by the time we get to Samson, there's not much positive about the character of Samson anymore, about the character of the judges. This is where the book of Judges ends, doesn't it? We read that this morning. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king to provide leadership and guidance for the nation. And we see here that the judges were not part of of the long-term purposes of God in redeeming the nation of Israel, in redeeming His people from bondage, from slavery, from sin. In order to understand the failure of the judges, we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, where God made provision for a king, a king who was to write a copy of the law to guide and to keep both him and the nation. The judges were not that king that God would provide for. And so we have at the end of the Judges a famine of spiritual leadership in the land of Israel. The absence of a king, the absence of the word of God, of the law of God, and the lawlessness of the people 
is what characterizes the society in which Elimelech lives. The famine of leadership, both spiritual and political, the desire to do what is right in one's eyes is reflected in Elimelech's departure and decision to go and sojourn in the land of Moab. Elimelech himself fails to lead his family in the ways of God. The desire for physical bread outweighs the spiritual dangers of moving to Moab in the mind of Elimelech. The spiritual famine is also noted in the statement that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was not one king, but every person was a king to themselves. Each person was a ruler in their own little kingdom. This anticipates what God told Samuel as the Israelites clamored for King Saul to be made king. Their hearts had not changed much between the judges and King Saul ascending to the throne of Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. That's the symptom. That's the root of the problem here in the nation of Israel. They did not want God to rule over them, and so each of them ruled themselves. They did what was right in their own eyes. There was no law. They had their own law. They lived by their own law. When a society does what is right in its own eyes, the people will not have anyone rule over them except themselves. They exalt themselves as kings over their own kingdoms. And so we see immediately the contemporary nature of the book of Ruth, the backdrop of the book of Ruth. The times in which we live are characterized by every man doing what is right in his own eyes, casting aside the law of God, casting aside the kingship of God, saying, we will not have him rule over us. We will rule our own lives. Thank you very much. When people in society desire to do what is right in their own eyes, it's a symptom of God rejection, a symptom of God rejection that lies at the heart of the nation of Israel in the time of Ruth. It lies at the heart of our culture, of our society, of our nation in our time. No place for God. A famine of spiritual leadership. A spiritual famine of epic proportions. What is the consequence of this spiritual famine? The famine of spiritual leadership in the land and the home as reflected in the time of Ruth and in the life of Elimelech made Israel ripe for judgment. If we go back through the book of the Judges, what do we read there? Why did the Judges rise up under the hand of God 
It was to fight the enemy as they came again and again against the nation of Israel, picking off their crops, plundering everything in sight, making life absolutely miserable for the nation of Israel. Pillaging, burning, raping, scorched earth policy of the enemy. This would often lead to a food famine in the land. Behind this famine is also the spiritual judgment of God, as as Deuteronomy makes clear. Deuteronomy 28, when Israel would break covenant with God, God would discipline through famine and emptiness. Cursed shall be thy basket in thy store, the Lord said. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kine or of thy cows, the flocks of thy sheep. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed." This is the situation that marks the introduction of the book of Ruth. A famine of spiritual leadership. A famine of divine judgment and the lack of food. And the constant presence of enemies coming and nipping at the heel of Israel, as it were. And God's discipline in that famine. There are three principles that we need to learn this morning from this famine. First, a famine of spiritual leadership in the institutions of society, in the nation, in the home, in the church, ripens us for judgment. An absence of leadership the basic building blocks of human society ripens us for judgment. It appears that we're moving there rapidly, doesn't it? An absence of leadership in all the areas of human society. That's the first principle, a sobering principle. A call for us to exercise our leadership in the home as men of God, as women of God, as young people, as a church, to exercise leadership in the vacuum of leadership that is present in society today. The second principle is this, the desire to do what is right in our own eyes doesn't just come about. The desire to do what is right in our own eyes indicates a departure from the Word of God and is symptomatic of rejection of God. How does Paul describe that in Romans 1? The gospel is the power of God into salvation and to them that believe. But those who do not believe suppress the truth In unrighteousness, there's an active sense in which those who do not believe in God are actively pushing that truth away. It 
The desire to do what is right in our own eyes doesn't just happen. It requires man to do something to, with the truth. It requires man to suppress the truth, to actively put it down and push it away. To reject God. We see that unfolding in front of our eyes, don't we? If it feels good, why not do it? Never mind what the Word of God says. Beloved, we would do well to guard our hearts from the desire to do what is right in our own eyes. If we are honest with ourselves this morning and we examine our hearts, we also see that tendency, don't we? But here's the third principle. It is in precisely such a situation that God works and overrules and redeems for His glory and, his sal- and the salvation of His people. So yes, there are sobering things to think about. Sobering things to apply to our own lives this morning. But here's this third principle, this overarching principle of the entire book of Ruth, that if we did not have this principle, we would go home utterly dejected, deflated, no hope whatsoever. If there was no divine intervention in human tragedy, we would have no hope whatsoever. But here, we have this principle at work, and this is what we need to keep in mind as we move ahead. It's in such a situation, in such a time that God works and overrules and redeems for His glory and the salvation of His people. Let's keep that principle in mind as we follow Elimelech now as he embarks on this tragic sojourn. As this famine prompts him to move to Moab, to engage in folly that jeopardizes his family. And we see in our second thought that this famine turns Elimelech to foolishness. We read these fateful words in verse 1. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There's an irony here as we consider the name of the town from which Elimelech leaves. Elimelech leaves Bethlehem. And children, what does Bethlehem mean? In the Hebrew, Bethlehem is a compound word, one word made of two words. And so we can separate them out. Beth. Lahem. So Beth is one word, Lahem is the other word. Or in the Hebrew, Beit Lechem. It means house of bread. House of bread. And here is the irony in a time of famine, Mo, uh, Elimelech leaves the house of bread for a foreign land. He removes his family from the place of God's blessing and fullness. And he goes to pursue what he thinks is a positive move for his family. 
The word sojourn means to tarry or to to turn aside. It indicates a temporary dwelling in a foreign land. And so in a sense, Elimelech had every intention of returning back to Bethlehem once it was food again. The word sojourn reveals his intent. To temporarily dwell in a foreign land. But Elimelech and his family are the covenant people of God. They moved to Moab, the land of the enemy. He did so knowingly. It was an act of foolishness, an act of folly on his part. We read in verse 2, And they came into the country of Moab and tarried there, or continued there. So if his intent was to sojourn there, the end was not a temporary sojourn, but a permanent dwelling. Elimelech made the conscious choice to depart from Bethlehem to go to Moab. Maybe he thought it would just be a few months so he could feed his family. He wanted it to be temporary, but we see here that even a a temporary turning aside will have a huge and massive impact on his family. His turning to Moab was indicative of Elimelech's heart, what was living there in his heart. In many ways, it was compromised along with the rest of Israel. Even the very thought of moving to Moab indicates a a level of spiritual compromise. Just a temporary turning aside, and then we'll get back. Maybe you know that reasoning as well. A temporary trifling with sin. I'll I'll get back. I'll get back to the ways of God. I'll get back to, to the ways of righteousness. I'll get back to the law tomorrow then you partake of that sin. If we go back to the root of it, it indicates spiritual compromise, entertaining that temptation to go and partake of sin. Elimelech thought he was doing, or he was doing what he, was, what he thought was right in his own eyes. One commentator makes the note that Scripture almost never tells us what people are feeling or thinking. We don't have the dialogue of people with themselves as they make decisions, at least in the narratives. But it's almost always their actions that reveal what lives in their hearts. That's true of Elimelech here. By his actions, we can see what's actually going on in his heart and in his mind. But that's true of us too, isn't it? We may not say what we're thinking. We may not say what motivates us or what drives us, but our actions often do. So it's an important lesson for us this morning, isn't it? How we are living indicates the condition of our heart, how we are living, how we act indicates what's going on in our hearts. Elimelech had forgotten in those moments that Moab was political, the political and spiritual enemy of Israel. If you recall that history of Israel and Moab, it was a history of, of animosity, of enmity, of hatred of Moab to Israel. 
As Israel was traveling to the promised land, Balak, the king of Moab, had hired Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 23. Shortly after this, in Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, Moab seduces the Israelites through intermarriage. The children of Israel married the children of Moab. That was forbidden. God had forbidden Israel from intermarriage with the heathen. Why? Because intermarriage would inevitably lead the children of Israel to worship the gods of Moab and forsake the God of Israel who had redeemed them from Egypt. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, we read that Moab refused to give Israel bread as they made their way to the promised land. Now, ironically, Elimelech turns to Moab for bread again. And we could say, for that which is not bread. Moab was indicative of the world. Moab was a picture of the world here and its seductive pleasures. And Elimelech knowingly walks into the trap of going to live in Moab. And I say again, The prospect of bread for his family outweighed the spiritual danger to his family. How often don't we fall into that trap? Getting ahead in life. Getting ahead in life. A few grand more. A nicer house, a nicer car. These things are not wrong in themselves. But if they are done out of a spirit of compromise, then we are in trouble. If the prospect of getting ahead for our family outweighs the spiritual danger to our family, then we're in trouble. Elimelech's sons also fell into this trap. They followed the pattern set by the Israelites in Numbers 25. They, they took to themselves the wives of Moab, contradicting and breaking the law of God, which forbade them from doing so. But this is exactly what Elimelech sets his family up for as they enter the borders of Moab. This foolishness of Elimelech is included as a warning and an encouragement for us this morning. It's a a warning for us, those especially this morning who are fathers, that it matters how we lead our families. Are we leading them closer to the border of a spiritual Moab, deeper into the world, or, or deeper into the mercy and faithfulness of God? Are we remaining in the house of bread even if it means doing with less? But living under the tent of of God's provision in Jesus Christ? Or are we taking our family from underneath that tent and, and taking them to the borders of a land that we ought not to be in? Let us learn from Elimelech this morning that the grass is not greener on the other side. A departure from the place where God feeds His people is almost always a sign of spiritual declension and impending spiritual disaster. 
So it's a warning for us to guard our own hearts as fathers, as mothers, as families, as a church. Not to depart from the place where God feeds us. Even though all around us is famine, let us wait in faith upon the Lord to feed us. Let us not take matters into our own hands and move into a spiritual Moab, into the world. But it's also an encouragement, isn't it? For those who have led their families into areas of spiritual compromise. Those of you who have watched your children make decisions that have led to spiritual compromise and placing their souls in danger. If this is all that we had these first five verses about Elimelech's family. Sin, uh, we, would, we would be hopeless, but sin does not have the last word in Elimelech's family. We have, we have the rest of, of the book of Ruth that tells us that though this is part of the tragedy, we need to remember that this is a narrative of God's redeeming love and He overrules and redeems in spite of sin and compromise. So it, it lifts our heads up with hope for what is coming, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that we seek out these compromising situations so that God's grace can be displayed. No. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. Shall we sin so that grace might abound? God forbid, he says. And so we never live on that fine line, do we? But we live in dependence upon the grace of God. God has called us to faithfulness and, and God blesses faithfulness, but it does mean that where our sins of compromise are confessed, that it is there that God works. That is the surprising character of the grace of God. Let us then renew our confession and prayers for our children, for our families, for God to turn what we and our children have done. That He might turn it for His redemptive purposes, for His glory and the salvation of our children and the turning of our hearts to Him again. Because repentance is not just a one-time act. But repentance is a lifelong lifestyle. But here we learn for our encouragement this morning that God is able to turn a tragic sojourn in the world into a story of His grace and redemption. And so God calls us to cling to that very grace, to that redeeming love towards sinners, to restore what we in our wickedness and in our foolishness have broken. But what about Elimelech's family? Family plays an important role in this narrative, as we've already seen, and that forms our third thought. We've seen the famine, the foolishness, but now the family. Elimelech takes his wife and two sons to Moab. Their family expands and then contracts in Moab. Their sons marry Moabite wives and their family expands. But then we look closer at the family and we, the sense of tragedy grows. We've seen Elimelech, the head of the family. What does his name mean? His name means God is my king. 
God is my king. On the one hand, this name is ironic because Elimelech is confessing anything but the truth that God is his king. Elimelech is the exact opposite of what his name means. He's saying, I am my king. He's his own king in moving to Moab. And yet by naming this character, by having this very man at this very point of history with his very name, speaks to the longing that characterizes the entire narrative that God truly is king. Speaks to the truth that God is king in spite of what Elimelech is doing. That this narrative is not just about Elimelech and his foolish choices in, in going into Moab, but it's, it's more about God and what God is doing in the life and through the life of Elimelech and then through Naomi and then through Ruth. will ultimately tr- prove to be true. That God is the king of his people, not just in the kingship of David, but how this narrative, this, this small slice of human history fits into the, the grand narrative of, of the greater story of God's redemption ending in the kingship of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So Elimelech means God is my king. In one sense, he's the exact opposite of his name. And yet his name is also a greater confession of that God is, is over Elimelech and the entire nation of Israel, over the, the history indeed of the world. And there's Naomi. Her name means sweet or pleasant. We don't know Naomi's role in the sojourn to Moab. We don't know whether she encouraged her husband or discouraged her husband, but what we, what we do know is that her name also indicates the opposite of what is happening in this situation. It's anything but sweet and pleasant. Indeed, as Naomi returns to Bethlehem, what did she ask for the women to do? Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Don't call me sweet and pleasant, but call me, call me bitter. That was truer to what was happening in her life than, than her name of Naomi. And yet she's there. Her name also speaks to the ending of the story when she would hold the baby born of Boaz and Ruth. She would hold Obed. And her life would again be sweet and pleasant because of what God had done for her through Ruth. So her name also speaks of something greater than just herself. Then there are the sons Malon and Kilian. Malon likely means sickly. Kilian means frail. These names capture the sadness, don't they? They they capture the pathos of this, this tragedy, this tragic sojourn in the land of Moab. We don't read much of them except that they followed in the footsteps of their father's comp- compromise, took unto themselves Moabite wives after his death. 
Maybe they honored their father, and then when their father was gone, they said, Dad's gone, let's do what we want. Sickly and frail. Indicating not just a physical condition, but a spiritual condition. Sickly and frail. That led them to marry these Moabite wives. Young people, there's a lesson here for you as well, isn't there? It matters who you marry. It matters who you marry. If you date or court someone who does not know Christ, by doing that, it places you squarely in the realm of spiritual compromise, and the reality is that you will be weak and sickly, spiritually speaking. So here's an encouragement this morning to seek a godly spouse, to marry in the Lord as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, an ungodly spouse. An ungodly girlfriend or boyfriend will easily lead you astray from God. Then there are Orpah and Ruth. Introduced in verse 4 as the wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. It's unclear what the name Orpah means. There's no clear meaning that speaks about her significance in the story. Maybe that's the point. She fades into insignificance as she makes the fateful choice to go back to Moab instead of following Naomi with Ruth. Ruth means friend or companion. She'll live up to her name. She stands out against the black backdrop of this sojourn in the land of Moab. In God's purposes, her name is a signal too of things to come. Immediately after the introduction of these women, we read that the family's stay in Moab was not a temporary stay. It wasn't just a few months. It turned into a settling down for ten years in the land of Moab. A temporary sojourn turned into a stay of ten years. Spiritual compromise and intermarriage had turned what was intended to be temporary into a settlement. It shows the greater spiritual lesson, doesn't it, that, that when we compromise and we, we fall into sin, we pursue sin, and we think it might be just a temporary sojourn, can turn into, a, into a, a permanent stay that is the real and present danger when we face sin and spiritual compromise, when we face the drawing power of the world. We think we can take one taste of it, only to find that we need more and more, and before we know it, a temporary sojourn turns into a permanent stay. It applies to all kinds of compromise. Ten years. Ten years of sorrow, of sadness, 
the opposite of what these names are supposed to mean. Each character of the family is introduced in the space of five verses within the context of a tragic sojourn, the darkness of sin and death. The temporary sojourn turns into a tragic one marked by death. The search for fullness of bread leads to the hollowing out of hearts and souls. Each of these names has their own story. And that's true of us this morning, isn't it? No matter who we are this morning, we all have a name. We all have a story that fits into the story of redemption, into the narrative of God's work in the world. Some of the characters in this story end in death, no more to be remembered. Others, like Orpah, will turn back and be noted for her decision to turn away from the grace of God. Naomi and Ruth will be used by God to bring forth redemption. Each of them is remembered for something. It brings us to an important question this morning. For what will you be remembered? Your significance is not necessarily in your name. Maybe your parents named you for something significant. But it goes deeper than a name this morning, doesn't it? It goes to the heart. It goes to the very response that you have to the preaching of the gospel. It goes to your response in God's callings in your life. Will God's redemption be exalted in your life by His grace or will you be remembered for spiritual compromise, a desire to remain in the Moab of this world? For what will you be remembered? Here's this family fraught with compromise. But nevertheless, a family that God will use for His own purposes, whom He leads through hard providences. Is it your prayer that your, your family, that your life will be used in a similar way as a beacon of hope and redemption to others in spite of the faults that you and your family have? Let it be your prayer Let it be your desire. Let it be your motivation to be that very thing. Not just as a family, but as a church. If we're living in times similar to the times of Ruth, how we need the leadership of fathers. How we need the families to be a beacon of hope and light rather than spiritual compromise. To exalt God as our King. To live with a sweetness of knowing that we are held in the hand of that very King. That He will do what is right and exalt Himself in our lives. And our last thought this morning, we end again on a sobering note because this tragic sojourn ends in fatality 
and forsakenness. In verse 3, we read, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. In verse 5, we read these sad words, Malon and Kilian died also, both of them. What a sad turn this sojourn takes. What Elimelech thought would lead to life and fullness for his family leads to death and grief for Naomi, for Ruth, for Orpah. This narrative makes the not-so-subtle point that compromise with the world, even if it seems like fullness for a moment, will ultimately lead to emptiness and death and sorrow. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are all widowed. What's the point of that? The point is that we need to learn that God leads through hard providences. Through this tragic sojourn that ends in in death for Elimelech, God uses this hard providence of death to work life from one who is as good as dead. That's what we'll see as the story unfolds. Elimelech's death would ultimately lead to life. These fatalities would end in seeming forsakenness for Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Verse 3 emphasizes this. A sense of forsakenness. And she was left and her two sons. For those of you who are widowed, you know You know what that is. You know the pain of being alone, missing the one you love, your companion, your your friend. In verse 5, her forsakenness is heightened in the death of her sons, too. In verse 3, it's she was left and her two sons. Verse 5, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. She's all alone. She's forsaken. It meant that Naomi had no hope of of an heir anymore. There was no one to carry on the family name. It would seem that redemption would end right here. Her life seems so incredibly empty as the sojourn in Moab becomes more tragic by the year. She's a stranger in Moab. She is a widow in Moab with no hope, no helper near. There's no support network for Israelite widows. The Moabites didn't have that provision in their law to care for the widow like the Israelites had. We see God's wisdom in giving his law. But Elimelech had removed his wife from the boundaries of that law. And we see the consequences of it. She's left alone. No one to help her. No provision. No network of care. Moab didn't care for its widows. Much less foreign widows. It seems as if God has forsaken her in all of this. There's no note of divine help at all. The road to Moab seems to be a dead-end road for Naomi. What does it underscore for us this morning? underscores for us that the world and its broad road to destruction is indeed a dead end. 
It ends in death and hopelessness, forsakenness, not just of man, but of God Himself. Everything in these first five verses is is funneling down to this, impossibility and defeat. Impossibility and defeat. There's a tension at the end of these five verses, a tension that cries out to be resolved and, and will be resolved as we move through the book of Ruth. It's a bitter beginning, but God is still at work in spite of the sin and its ensnaring power. God is still at work in the hard providences. Thanks be to God, we don't have just these five verses. We have more of the story. We have the climax of the story. We have the end of the story. We need to remember that God is still at work in these hard providences. That's what we need to remember as we experience the same things. The destructive power of sin and compromise leads to hopelessness and helplessness in the human assessment. From the way we look at things, it's hopeless, it's discouraging. But beloved, behind all of this lies the hand of God to work powerfully to work graciously, to restore, and to redeem. God is funneling us down to this one thing, isn't he, this morning? To see that if it was left up to us, we'd make a mess of our lives every single day, every single moment. If left to ourselves, we'd be like Elimelech. But it's precisely in such situations that God is active with His redeeming love. Let's remember that as we face hard providences, as we deal with the ravages of sin in this world and our own lives, let us hope and the God of redemption and mercy and beseech Him to turn things around in His faithfulness to draw us back to Bethlehem to the place and the fullness of bread in Christ. He draws us through these opening verses funneling us down to this one thing that it's impossible from a human perspective. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That was Mary's confession. The news that she would give birth to a Redeemer. It's a lesson that we need to learn again and again. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He draws us this morning out of ourselves, out of our sinfulness, out of the darkness of spiritual compromise. And he says, behold, behold the son of David whom I brought forth out of impossibility because that is exactly what we have here. If this is all that we have of of one through five of, of, of 
the book of Ruth, there'd be no hope of redemption. But we have the end of the book of Ruth that ends in David. Speaks of the faithfulness of God to his covenant. Speaks of a gracious king who redeems sinners from spiritual compromise and restores backsliders by his grace. In his redeeming love. This is what God is going to do. From human impossibility, from spiritual compromise, from death and forsakenness, God will raise up a king. And not just any king, but the son of David to sit on his throne. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess. We confess our tendency, our bent towards spiritual compromise. We've seen it displayed for us in all its irrationality and its insanity because that's what it is. When we pursue sin in its dead-end road of death and forsakenness, we end in human impossibility. But we thank Thee for Thy Word that breathes hope and life not in ourselves, but in Christ who draws us with cords of loving kindness, the one who draws us to return to Thee in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, though we in many ways have have heard a sobering message, a warning message, we pray that it would not discourage hearts, but that it would encourage us to seek our life afresh in Christ. As we are funneled down to our own impossibilities, we cry out to Thee, the God of all possibilities. For what is impossible with us is possible with Thee. And so, Lord, Thou hast cornered us this morning, as it were, to see that there's no other place to go but to Thee. So bless this message, that those who are about to engage in spiritual compromise would be stopped, would be turned to Thee, that those who have engaged in spiritual compromise would grieve over their sin and return to Thee, for there is a way back. That we would return to the place, to the house of bread, the one who is the very bread of life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and find in him all that we need. Be with us in this day. We thank thee for a day of rest, for a day of worship, for a day of service in thy kingdom. Lord, we pray that thou wilt provide and help us. We ask all this now, 
the forgiveness of all our sins. For Jesus' sake alone. Amen.